Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. Welcome to our third message in the series of Gospel Fluency. Uh, the title I've taken from the book, Gospel Fluency, by Jeff Vanderstelt. And the subtitle is Speaking the Truths of Jesus into the Everyday Stuff of Life. And the gospel, uh, we just celebrated Easter and we celebrate the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But uh, sometimes I actually realize we, we stop a bit short on the gospel when we end with resurrection. Because there's actually one last piece to it, and it's the ascension of Jesus. And why I think that matters is the fact that Jesus not only resurrected, he ascended to the right hand of God and is King Jesus, is in rule of this new kingdom that he's ushered in and has inaugurated and invites us to participate in. So the ascension is an aspect because it invites us into this living and active relationship with a person, with Jesus who loves us so incredibly much. And this is the good news that we have to share. And uh, all of this is offered to us by the grace of God. So this, this good news, this gospel that we have, it's a gospel of grace. And that's what we touched on last week in our second message in this series. Uh, we looked at, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us. That was in Titus 2. And we saw that the Holy Spirit uses the gospel of grace to teach us and how God's grace should inform how we think, how we speak, and how we even act. And this is what we mean by gospel fluency, to understand it in such a way that we live and breathe it, and that it affects everything that we do. It means that we understand how the, the good news of God's grace impacts every aspect of our lives. So if you weren't here for last week's message, I encourage you to check out our website, thewellbinbrook.com. We post them on there or on uh, your podcast app and um, give it a listen. But tonight, what I want us to focus on is a, this concept a little more deeply. And I want us to discuss more specifically the gospel in terms of thinking gospel thoughts. So if you've ever tried to learn another language, you'll know that it's almost only when you start thinking in that other language, that you really start to become truly fluent. In fact, as part of my MDiv, I had to take four Greek courses, and uh, I was never good at French in school growing up, even though you start in grade four, uh, so I was terrified to take these courses. And there's some debate around whether or not these courses are important anymore, because some people say, well, we have Google, we have Bible tools on our laptops that we don't really need to even under take these courses because we have it all accessible to us. But one of the things that I appreciated that the president of MacDiv, Stan Porter, suggested was that he's adamant that we keep the language courses as part of this master's in order for students to learn that the Bible wasn't written in English. And it's, it's such a simple thing, but it's so profound because when you actually start recognizing the, the nuances and that this was written in a completely different time, context, culture, language, you realize that there's so much more to it than just getting hung up on a simple English word and how it's been translated. And that's kind of 
why this whole thing's important to us as Christians, to learn the gospel. Because if we're going to speak the natural language of the gospel, if we're going to live out God's grace in the ordinary moments of our lives, then we need to have minds that are constantly being renewed by the truths of the gospel. And so tonight, the question I want to ask is simply, how can the gospel of grace influence my thinking so I can live in a way that's more consistent with who God is and who I am in Christ? Because if grace is our teacher, then first and foremost, it should teach us how to think. So let's ask, how can the gospel of grace influence my thinking as we seek to become gospel-fluent people? But first, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you now, and God, we can't do this without the guidance and help of the Holy Spirit. So we ask that you fill us and speak to us in such a way that brings your word to life. God, we know that it's living and active, and we ask that we understand it in a fresh way that will again encounter your son and your grace and your love. We ask this in your name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles with you or your phones, uh, or it's going to be on the screen behind us as well. I've just kind of been emphasizing that again because uh, it's we have our phones on us all the time. And what a great tool we have to be able to uh, pull up Scripture when we need to. But it's going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 1 to 5. So feel free to follow along on the screen. And here's what it says. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold towards you when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be, Towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. So one of the most nerve-wracking aspects of, of being a pastor is this whole public speaking thing. The week in, week out, uh, coming up here, sharing a message, uh, or you're asked to officiate weddings or MC weddings, uh, pray in front of large gatherings. And that's got to be, for me, the biggest learning curve. But not just that, the reason why it's so terrifying is because eventually you're bound to mess up. You're bound to make a mistake, slip up, say something that you're like, oh, no. And if you're in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, you can kind of backtrack or explain it. But when you're kind of on more of a larger stage, it, it's hard to always explain what you meant by your slip up. And one of the mistakes I remember making, well, even just a couple weeks ago, I remember talking about my good friend, John, and I'm like, he's such a good guy, he'd give you the shirt off my back. And then I'm like, wait, not my back, his back, he's, he's a good guy. And I remember the, the first time I was ever asked to lead communion, and I was so nervous, and I'm shaking, and, and uh, I was doing an internship throughout the summer over in Mississauga, and 
I was praying for the bread and the cup, and I remember praying for the bread and saying, and God, we thank you for the bo- your bones that were broken for us. And after I prayed that, the pastor leans over and he says, you know what, actually, that goes against prophecy because no bones were actually broken. I'm like, no, ah, idiot. And you feel so small, you feel stupid, and you just want to cringe and crawl up into a hole. But it's always great to be on the other side of things because if you talk to pastors, I'm sure the list goes on and on. And I remember a couple great examples of a pastor that I grew up under And the one was when he was talking about his anniversary. And he took his wife out for dinner, and then he wanted to say that he he took his wife to her favorite store of Bed Bath & Beyond. But it came out that he took her out for dinner and then took her to Bed & Beyond. (laughs) And we're like, whoa, this was a Baptist church. And uh, my my ultimate favorite, it was the same pastor, and... uh, he, he would use you in, your, in his sermons if he noticed you nodding off or like if you weren't paying attention. And I still remember Pastor Mel, he was sitting in the, near the front and he started drifting off. And, and uh, this pastor was talking about our identity and how our names give us so much identity. So he thought he'd use a quick illustration on the fly and he said, like, just imagine if we had different names. Like, imagine if Pastor Mel was a dick. And everyone, (laughs) and unfortunately, that's what the name that came to his mind. Pastor Mel never fell asleep again in the service, but uh, I'm sure if you talk to even Eugene and Phil, they just have examples of, yeah, I shouldn't have said that, or I slipped up saying that. (sighs) But you know what? As you listen to me on a regular basis, I'm sure you're going to pick up on it more and more. Amanda's great at pointing things out to me on our drive home. Uh, I still remember last year after a family dedication service, we're driving home and she's like, hey, did you know that when you were dedicating Eleanor that you kept calling her Kinsley the whole time? I'm like, what? Like, ah, oh. like I'm texting Alex. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Or the line that Amanda calls me on a lot is that I say, sometimes, always. So sometimes I always want to do this. And she's like, that makes no sense. (laughs) But you know what? The next week, I just either mess up the same thing or I mess up uh, something else. And I hate it when I do that. Because I work hard to actually try not to do that, surprisingly enough. But it happens, and especially when I decide to forego my notes and kind of just go uh, off the cuff. But let me invite you into the weirdness of my brain. Not all of it, because I don't know if you can handle it. But after I make these mistakes, and after I've slipped up and I've, I've made the wrong thing, not only is my mind constantly going up here and I'm thinking, how am I going to dig myself out of this? But after the service, I try and beeline it to Amanda so she can reassure me and say, yeah, you're not an idiot. You're good. But if I happen to get caught by someone and we're talking, I have to admit, I don't always understand the whole conversation we're talking about or remember it. Because in my mind, I'm constantly thinking, Kevin, how could you have messed that up? You had one task to do and you messed up. And I'm just beating myself up over and over again. 
Now, of course, you guys tease me about it afterwards, and that's fine. It's understandable. And on the outside, I brush it off. I turn it into a joke myself. But on the inside, I'm always just disappointed in myself. I'm like, oh, how could I have done that? And for the rest of the day, I just keep replaying the moment over and over. And every time, it, it's kind of like that snowball. It gets bigger and faster and it gets a little worse. And then you start thinking catastrophic. What if I offended them? What if they, they're upset with me and they never want to come back to our church? What if I embarrassed our church? But the question I have for you is, does it ever happen to you too? Have you ever been filled with so much self-doubt or consumed with the self-destructive thoughts? Have you ever been crushed with regrets or overwhelmed by the thoughts of worry? And I'm just going to assume that you have. But what I want to stress tonight is that God wants to shape our thoughts so that they conform to his gospel of grace. Because the journey towards gospel fluency means that our thoughts are shaped by grace. So when I mess up, I have to be very intentional about allowing God's grace to inform and transform my pattern of thinking. And when I do that, although it takes time, it takes effort, and sometimes reassurance from my wife, but when I truly allow the Holy Spirit to use the gospel to penetrate, to permeate, my thoughts, I'm able to stop beating myself up. I, I actually find that, that I begin being filled with peace and joy. And this humble confidence that I spoke of last week returns when I allow God to shape my thoughts so they conform to his gospel. So I want to share with you how this happens for me. But let me first return to the text that we just read. Because here we find the Apostle Paul wrapping up his second letter to the Christians in the city of Corinth. And he finds himself in this unenviable position of having to defend himself and his ministry. So Paul planted the church as recorded in Acts chapter 18, and he spent a year and a half teaching them the word of God. But when Paul moved on, then some false teachers came in and started undermining his ministry, what he had planted. And the false teachers started saying, well, you know, Paul, he's not really an apostle. He's not even a very good speaker. They said things like, Paul's letters are weighty and forceful, but in, in person, he's unimpressive. And his speaking, well, that amounts to nothing. So Paul had to defend his apostleship, and more importantly, he had to defend his gospel of grace. But of course, and this is the hard part, he had to do it in a grace-filled way. So he writes in 2 Corinthians 10.1, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold towards you when away. So right off the bat, I love how Paul, he doesn't deny his weaknesses. He, he owns them. He's honest about the areas of ministry where he's not as effective as he'd like to be. He knows that he's a better writer than he is a speaker. And Paul knows that he's underwhelming when he's face to face. There's this humility there. He doesn't try to pretend to be better than he is. He agrees with them saying, yeah, I'm timid when face to face, but bold when far away. But this doesn't mean that Paul agrees with everything his detractors are saying. It doesn't mean he just lets them walk all over him. That's not the gospel. The gospel breeds humility, but it's always this humble confidence. 
And so Paul doesn't do what I would do and beat himself up for his weaknesses and leadership limitations. He might be tempted to do that. He wasn't perfect. But we don't see any evidence of that here. Because he writes in the second verse, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. You see, what Paul is concerned about is not his reputation. He's concerned about the integrity of the gospel. As we saw in the video a few minutes ago, the standards of this world tell us that our worth is determined by our performance. It's what we do. But the gospel of Jesus tells us that God's standards are the exact opposite of the world's standards. God's standard is perfection, but only one, perf- uh, only one person was perfect, and that was Jesus. So when we believe in God's son, Jesus, the gospel says that we receive this gift of his grace. We receive forgiveness that we didn't earn and that we don't deserve. The gospel says that Jesus was good enough for us and that this perfection has been given to us as a gift because he took the punishment that our sins deserved. The beauty of the gospel is that we're accepted as we are, but he doesn't leave us there. We, we don't celebrate the mess that we're in. We celebrate the fact that our creator has rescued us from the mess. He's restoring us. He's transforming us. He calls us beautiful in and through him. So Paul, he gets a little edgy when you suggest that his life and his message are rooted in the standards of this world. When they're rooted in this, you have to try and be good enough for God. Paul reminds the Corinthians that God's standards were met only by Jesus. So he reminds the Corinthians that Paul isn't good enough, and they're not good enough. And he reminds us in the 21st century that we're not good enough, because there's only one person who was good enough. And it's a good thing he was good enough for all of us not-so-good-enough people, if you're still tracking with me. Only Jesus met this standard of perfection. And that's why God's love and forgiveness can only be this gift that you receive. It's never something that you earn. Paul writes, if you think that I live by the performance-based value standards of this world, you're about to find out how bold I can be. Paul doesn't mess around when it comes to this gospel of grace. He wants to drive that home time and time again. And in the next few verses, Paul shows us how he lives his life in a way that's gospel fluent. In the next few verses, Paul is going to give us the backstage pass to the deepest recesses of his mind and reveal how he's able to live in the freedom of God's standards and not in the crushing standards of the world's expectations. So check this out. In verses three and four, Paul writes, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So to start, Paul recognizes that he's in this spiritual battle. And it's not a battle against flesh and blood enemies, but against spiritual forces around us. And Paul knows that the weapons of the world, they don't have the the power to defeat these demonic powers to defeat these spiritual powers. Paul knows that all of the humanistic philosophy, all of the world's way of thinking, 
can do nothing to demolish the strongholds of the enemy. You see, the world says around us, your value is directly tied to your performance. If you do good, you are good. Pretty much every self-help book on the market is tied directly to performance. It's try harder, work smarter, make yourself important, earn value to the world. And every day you try to fight with the weapons of the world. You wake up in the morning and you jump on this treadmill of performance. And you have to prove your value again and again. Now, I'm not saying you should not read self-help books. That you shouldn't watch Dr. Phil or Dr. Oz get some good advice. I don't know if those guys are still around. I assume so. (laughs) But I'm just saying that as we become gospel fluent, it's important to know that there's this underlying system of the world's advice that you need to be aware of. Because the world keeps saying, do this, do that. And you'll have value. But as you get to witness in and through me and my blunders that I let you guys in on, there are lots of times that we don't do this. We, we don't measure up. We don't do things perfectly. So what then? What happens during the times when we fail and the times we don't perform or live up to the standards that we set for ourselves? Or the times that we don't live up to the standards that others expect of us? Most of all, there's lots of times when we know that we're not living up to the standards God expects of us. In those moments, it's the, when the enemy's right there to condemn us. But you see, God, he convicts us, but that's not the same as condemnation. God convicts us in order that we'll confess, that we'll repent, we'll experience his amazing grace in the moment of failure. And I believe conviction, it helps us reorient ourselves back to Christ. And that's one of the things I love about having communion weekly, is this opportunity to reflect and remember God's grace that's offered. It's not to beat ourselves up, but it's to remember this grace. But the enemy, when we kind of sit in this self-doubt and wallowing, they're right there to condemn us of sin. So we'll give up and we'll feel hopeless. And when we feel hopeless, we give up confessing sin and we settle into this belief that we're never going to experience freedom. So what happens next is, well, the footholds that we give the enemy become strongholds. And we wallow in this place of guilt and shame for our sins because the gospel of grace hasn't been applied to our lives daily. We're not gospel fluent We're living by the standards of this world where you are what you do. We're not living in the wonder of the gospel as deeply loved sons and daughters of God. So Paul knows that he's in a battle. He knows that the weapons he needs are going to be different than the weapons of this world. The world and the demonic enemy both shout, try harder. Come on, get your act together. What's wrong with you? That's the voice I hear each time I mess up. And that's the voice I'm sure you guys hear too. But I hope by now you'll agree that the voice doesn't have that sweet aroma of the gospel. When I mess up, when I say the wrong thing, let someone down, I often feel God wanting to get a different message through to my heart and mind. He wants me to hear 
the gentle whisper that, Kev, your value isn't determined by what you do. He wants me to hear, yeah, you messed up. What's new? I still love you. What more do you need? God wants me to hear, Kev, your performance will never set the bar for how I feel about you. In fact, you're more sinful than you probably ever dare to admit, but you're also more loved than you ever dare to dream. God wants me to hear him saying, get over yourself. It's not about you. It's not about what people think about you. It's always been about me. And God wants me to hear him say, Kevin, my son, I work best through weak people. Because when you're weak, then I can be strong through you. But I can't hear that whisper if I'm beating myself up. Or more accurately, while I'm listening to the enemy. So I have to take charge. I have to say, what am I thinking right now? Stop this. What am I believing right now? So Paul writes in verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So Paul writes, I do not live by the standards of this world. He writes, I do not try to fix my problems with the weapons of this world. He writes, I measure every thought in my mind against the truth. He writes, I demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and his grace. And Paul writes, with God's help, I can take every thought captive and force it to comply with the good news about Jesus. So Paul could have done what I typically do. He could have gone on autopilot, wallow in self-pity, kind of beeline to Amanda. I need reassurance that I'm not a dummy. But instead, he realized he's in a spiritual battle. He said to himself, stop, wait, what am I thinking? He took all of his thoughts and he captured them and he gave them to Jesus. And that's what we're going to have to do if we want to be gospel-fluent Christians who are transformed by grace. But unfortunately, if you are like me, we're oblivious to the thoughts going through our mind. Most of us, we're, we're not dialed into the question of, does this conform to the gospel? Most of us have thoughts, and they're kind of like free-range chickens, just going around. Does it... <laughs> and we never stop to consider, does this thought belong here? Does this thought exude the grace of God? The Bible says that our minds are sacred space, like the holy of holies in the Old Testament tabernacle. No unclean thing belongs there. We have to guard and protect it. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says that we're to be strict gatekeepers of our mind, only entertain thoughts that are noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy. But instead, we, we go on these mental vacations and we don't realize what's happening and how our anxiety and worry, the restlessness, the anger, the bitterness roam around free range. We need to renew our minds, which leads to transformation. So in his book, Gospel Fluency, Jeff Vanderstelt writes this, to take something captive is to take control of it and put it in a controlled environment. It's like subduing a ferocious animal and putting it in a cage. This is what we regularly need to do with our thoughts. Subdue them, capture them, and put them in a mental cage. So when I slip up, when I say the wrong thing, when I make a stupid comment, an off-the-cuff remark, 
I have to stop and ask, wait, what am I thinking right now? I have to capture those self-defeating thoughts. And I just have to pray, Lord, help me conform these thoughts to your gospel of grace. Now, a great way that we can do this, that we saw last week, is with four simple questions. Here's how we can take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Four questions you can ask in everyday life situations. When we're anxious, when we're worried, when we're discouraged, when we're frustrated, when we feel defeated, when we're hopeless, whatever. Ask these questions. And it's probably best, too, if you don't do this alone, if you have someone that you can even talk through these questions with. Let someone into your world and let them help you ask and answer these questions. But start with prayer, just saying, Lord, mold my thoughts so they conform to your gospel. And then ask the question, who is Jesus? Does this thought conform to who Jesus is? You, you might even want to grab a pen and paper and write it in your journal. Just, God, please remind me who you are in this moment of worry. I have to remember that God's in charge and his glory is what matters, not mine. I have to remember that God lavishes me with his love. That God can even glorify himself through my failures, through my shortcomings. I have to remember that, that his love is independent of what others think of me or what I think of my performance. So then the next question is, what has Jesus done or what is he doing? Does this thought conform to what God has done for me? You could ask in prayer, Lord, what have you done for me that I need to remember right now? I have to remember that Jesus died for me. He, he rose from the dead to, to give me life, life to the fullest. I have to keep in mind that the Holy Spirit is in me. And he's helping me to live out God's gospel of grace, this resurrection power that we have. I have to remember that I'm not doing this alone. I have to remember that because of what God's done, I'm not defined by this. Sure, I messed up. Sure, I made a mistake and I feel embarrassed. But that doesn't define who I am or make me any less valuable. So we also ask, who are we in light of Jesus' work? Does this thought conform to who God says I am? Or you could pray, Lord, who am I in your eyes? Help me to see me as you see me. Remembering that we belong to God, that I'm someone who's valuable to God. I don't have to live life for the approval of others because of my identity as God's child. Do you see how these questions can be used to make every thought obedient to Christ and the gospel of his grace? So the last question is, how should we live in light of who we are? Does this thought conform to the way I should live? Or, Lord, what should I do here in light of your truth? I need to remember that I've been called to a life of peace and love, not defeat and fear. I've been called to a life of humble confidence, not self-loathing and despair. Now, it might sound silly that I have to go through all of this for such a dumb mistake, because messing up is such an ordinary thing. It just happens. It's an everyday problem for me. But I wanted to help illustrate this daily battle that we have, this example of the kind of thing that can derail us so easily by just making one simple mistake or by calling the wrong person by the wrong name 
It challenges me and reminds me that we need to know what God says and is saying. We need to bring our thinking and speaking and behaving into conformity with God's word. And it reminds me of what we celebrated just a few weeks ago, the triumph of the resurrection. And Jesus' last words, it is finished. And what does that mean? Well, it means he offers us a free gift. It means that the way is cleared. It means that we don't have to live under the weight of condemnation, guilt, or shame. It means there's forgiveness in and through Jesus. It means that we have purpose, hope, eternal life through him. And it means we're loved more deeply than we'll ever know. So with the help of the Holy Spirit who's in us, let's allow the gospel to shape our thoughts this coming week. 